I said, do you have a favorite? One of the teenagers said, hell no. That was, that was, the, whole, that was the whole series. Okay, so we've been talking about death, and we've been talking about afterlife, salvation. Today, I want to talk about this. I want to talk about live like you were dying. Live like you were dying. I heard about this man, and he went to the, uh, his doctor's for the annual checkup that he did every year. And the next day, the doctor called him, and he said, I have bad news, and then I have incredibly bad news. He said, the bad news is you only have 48 hours to live. The patient said, well, what's the incredibly bad news? He said, the incredibly bad news is I've been trying to call you since yesterday. <laughs> oh, be quiet. That was such a good sermon. If I were in the Methodist church, they would have laughed their heads off on that one. Whenever we woke up this morning, God gave us a present. This present is called today. And today is the most valuable commodity that you have. It is far more valuable than money. Queen Elizabeth said on her deathbed, I would give my entire kingdom away for just one more day. So you can make more money, but you can't make today over again. None of us are promised tomorrow. With this gift of today comes great responsibility. You are responsible to not misuse this very important gift that millions of people around the world do not get today. You're responsible to not live bitter, to not live with unforgiveness in your heart. Don't misuse this gift by worrying about things that aren't going to be able to be fixed today anyway. Don't misuse this gift of today by having uh, unforgiveness, bitterness. Don't, live, don't misuse this gift by being lazy and waking up with no plan and just seeing where life takes you. Use today as the valuable commodity that it is. Don't spend today without reconciling with your siblings or your parents or your children or long lost friends that you know God put in your path maybe 20 years ago, but because of pride or ignorance or rebellion or whatever reason, you're no longer in a relationship. I'm not saying to be their best friend, but open up the lines of communication with them. Don't let the enemy steal a relationship that God intended for you to have while you were on earth. You say, well, John, well, I'm healthy. I'm not going to die tomorrow. Actually, Jesus could come back tomorrow for all we know and whenever the trumpet sounds there's not going to be time in between the trumpet and whenever you get called up into heaven for you to call that person that you've been meaning to call there's not going to be time between the trumpet and when you get called up in heaven for you to forgive the people that did you wrong or for you to seek forgiveness from those people who you did wrong that was says in mark 13 32 it says no one knows the day or time when the son of god will appear it goes on saying first Corinthians 15 52 it'll happen suddenly Quicker than the blink of an eye. Today is a gift. And once we live today, we will never, ever get it back again. Uh, my friend Brian and I were on vacation this past week and we were talking sharing stories from our teenage years. And we got in a fight and we did this and this happened. This happened. And every other story ended in, well, he died back in so-and-so. Or he committed um, uh, suicide back in so-and-so. Or, or he had a drug overdose back in so-and-so. He got in a car wreck back in so-and-so. God forbid that happened to me or Brian. We were still able to tell the stories. We're still alive. But that can happen to us tomorrow. And I'm sure you have the same stories as well. Uh, there's a story I like to tell at a funeral about this. This couple's a true story. And uh, when they were in their 50s, the husband had a mild heart attack. And he was uh, rushed to the hospital, and they checked him out, and after a few hours, they said he was okay, and they, they began to release him. But when he, they did, his wife finally made it to the hospital, and she was so beside herself. She was distraught. 
said, honey, I can't believe this. She almost died. He said, no, no, no. It was a mild heart attack. No big deal. They're sending me home. She says, no, I want you to understand how precious life is. You could have gone. This could have been your last day. She said, from now on, I want us to do something special. Just to remind us how short life can be. Every night before we go to bed, I want us to kiss on the lips seven times. He agreed just to please his wife. But that night, she did not forget. That night, she kissed him on the lips seven times. Happened the next night. Before they went to bed, they kissed on the lips seven times. This happened year after year when they were in their mid-70s. Their wife was on her regular routine walk around the neighborhood like she did every day. Only this time it was different. She tripped on a piece of concrete. She fell and she hit her head. By the time the ambulance got her to the emergency room, she had already passed away. A few days later, the husband gave the most beautiful eulogy you could imagine. He stood before the congregation. He said, listen, my wife and I, we live every day as if it were our last. We enjoyed every single moment. Then he looked at them and he said, at the very end, she died on Tuesday afternoon. But on Monday night, I kissed her on the lips seven times. The Bible says in James 4, 14, you don't know what your life is going to be like tomorrow. You're like a vapor that appears for a moment and then it disappears. It seems that we wait until the day of Thanksgiving before we actually tell God how grateful we are for the friends that he's put in our life, for the job that we have, for the fact that we live in America. We wait until Christmas to finally find some gifts and presents for our close friends, see something they'd like, we'd like to give them something. We wait until Valentine's Day to tell those people closest to us how much we love them. You may think today is an ordinary day, but there's no such thing is an ordinary day. Today is a gift from God. I'm very blessed that uh, both of my siblings live here in Myrtle Beach. Um, I have a younger brother, Patrick, younger sister, Lacey, and um, we've all lived here, you know, both mainly, mainly our whole life. But um, we don't see eye to eye on hardly anything. I mean, probably 85% of life we have disagreements on, but it never stops us from being a family. Never stops us from texting each other. Never stops us from getting together. When we get together, we laugh. We cut up. We don't talk about the things that we don't agree on. We know how to guard our hearts. Uh, my brother, he's here, and he's incredibly brilliant. He just gets degree after degree after degree after degree. I can't even, I'm not even smart enough to tell you what he does for a living. I think somehow he builds machines that build machines that build parts for machines. I think that's somehow how it works. He does all the electronics, all the mechanical. Brilliant, brilliant guy. My sister Lacey, she's an RN, and uh, she works at Waccamaw Hospital, and she works, I think, in the crazy section, in like the worst section, so if you ever go to Waccamaw and she's your nurse, we definitely need to put you on the prayer chain really bad, you're in a really bad section there, but my sister, she's, my sister's also incredibly smart. Again, we don't see eye to eye, but we still hang out, we still have, uh, we still have relationships together. Uh, the biggest mistake she made at the hospital one time was she got a, a catheter mixed up with an epidural or something. I don't know how that happened. But anyway, and um, <laughs> just kidding. The Bible says in Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times, but a brother or a sister is born for adversity. Don't let sibling rivalry prevent sibling unity in your life. Don't let who got the inheritance, who didn't get the inheritance, stop a relationship that God Almighty intended for you to have while you are on earth for all of your days here. What changes would you make in your relationships with your siblings if this were your last day to live? I heard somebody say the problem is not that life is too short. The problem is that we wait too long to enjoy it. See, most of life is pretty routine. That's why we have to learn how to enjoy the small things. Most of life is coming to church. 
going to work, eating, doing the whole thing all over again, sleeping every night. That's pretty much what life is. That's why we have to enjoy the little things. We have to enjoy the, the TV shows where we get to laugh out loud. Enjoy reading books. Enjoy walking in the park. Enjoy the sunsets. Enjoy the sunrises. When we read in the Bible about all the great exploits of these men and women of faith, we think that's how our life is supposed to be. We read about Daniel and the lion's den. We read about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. That was one day of their life. The rest of their life was just like you and me. And to be honest, I believe that you and I could count more miracles that God's done for us than the people in the Bible. Moses spent 40 years living in Aner. I mean, in the desert. 40 years. He had the same thing every single day, but he served God with a good attitude. He learned how to enjoy the small stuff. Noah lived to be 950 years old, and one of those years he was on the ark. That means 949 years he basically just did the same thing. And a lot of times when we read about these heroes of faith and we think, man, when I get to be a godly man or woman like them, then I can enjoy life. Then I can just relax and then I can, you know, live like I was dying and just live every day full of faith. That's never going to happen. You're never going to be perfect while you're on earth. Uh, don't wait until you're perfect to enjoy serving God. I used to think, well, after I mature and I'm godly and I always say the right thing, then I can really, you know, calm down and then I can just take it day, one day at a time and, and be at ease. I spent the first probably eight years of ministry trying to be perfect and trying to be great. I remember when I was 26 and we started the church, I had the thought, man, when I'm 35, I'm going to be the most mature spiritual man in the world. And I'm 37 now and I wear Avengers night-night clothes to bed. I mean, I'm, you know... <laughs> That's just how it is. Anyway, Ezekiel 40, for that wasn't in my notes, by the way, so we'll just edit that out. But um, the fact that I said night, night, close, it makes me sweat. Anyway, so Ezekiel 44, 18, it says, While they minister in the temple, they shall not gird themselves with anything that causes them to sweat. Here's what the scripture means. It means you're not supposed to be sweating while you're serving God. Serving God is part, serving Jesus is, is a life of a journey. It's not a destination. It's not, man, after I overcome this addiction, then I can serve God. After I get better in this area, then I can serve God. After I stop doing this wrong, then I can serve God. No, you serve God now. It's about the enjoyment of serving Jesus. Um, a friend of mine called me last week, and I hadn't talked to him in eight years. He's from out, out of state. And he watches our broadcast, and he said, John Paul, I really, really, really need your help. I said, what's wrong? I thought some tragic event took place. He said, I'm battling lust. And I said, you are? I said, you're a guy, right? He said, yes. I said, well, you know, that's, that's pretty much normal for most. No, I, I, I have these thoughts come in my mind. I told my wife about it, and I read my Bible, and we go to this group, and I go to church, and I serve, but I just can't. These, these thoughts bombard me during the day. What do I do? I said, listen, man, that may bombard you the rest of your life. Don't wait to enjoy serving God and step up in the church and do things after you're perfect, because it's not going to happen. And if God healed you of that lust problem, you'd have another problem, fear. And then I'm afraid, I don't know if I'm going to step out, and then after you overcome that, you have another one, worry, oh, I can't stop worrying, that's not how life with Jesus is supposed to be. I told him the Apostle Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, begged God three times, and this is a guy who's writing the New Testament, said, remove this flesh problem I have, and we don't know if it was a physical ailment like a neck or a back problem, we don't know if it was a, a mental thing like lust, worry, fear, doubt, whatever it is, but he prayed three times, and every time God said no. If God was going to heal anybody, it would be the Apostle Paul. He told him, he said, my grace is sufficient. And I told my friend, I said, listen, if you didn't have this lust problem, do you think you would be reading your Bible as much as you do? He said, no. 
As a do you think you'd be praying as much as you do know? As a do you think you'd be communicating these things with your wife on an honest level, being transparent? He said, no. And so maybe God has this in your life on purpose, so every day you draw closer and closer and closer to rely on Him. Philippians 4.12 says, I know how to be happy with as little as with much. I can enjoy life in any and all circumstances. Listen, we're living in the good old days. Don't let these good old days pass you by because you have some problem in life that you're waiting to get over. These are the good old days. 20 years from now, you're going to look back and say, remember when Solid Rock only had one Sunday morning service? Remember back in 2017 when John Paul had all of his hair? Remember that? Remember back then whenever Mark weighed less than 320 pounds? Remember those good old days? Exodus 16, 4. Where am I at? I don't even know where I'm at. No, I'm not there. So, um, it's very, very funny to me how at funerals we spend a lot of money on flower arrangements for the deceased. We see them all around the altar and stuff. And then people stand up behind the microphone and they say nice things about the person that passed away. And I believe in that. I think it's a very respectful thing to do. But I'm here to tell you, if you have anything nice to say about me, don't wait until I'm dead. I want you to put it on Facebook today. Okay? <laughs> I love John Paul because dot, dot, fill in the blanks. If you're planning on buying me flowers when I die, don't do it. Give me the money now so I can go to Express and buy me a new suit. <laughs> Exodus 16.4 says that God told the Israelites, I'm going to send manna down from heaven every day. People can go out and gather enough for that day. Everybody say that day. Amen. This is how I'll see if they obey me. So God told his people, said, listen, I'm going to send you bread from heaven every single day, but only gather enough for one day. And I'm going to send you more tomorrow. And here's what a lot of them did. A lot of them feared and worried and thought, I'm not going to have enough for tomorrow. Is God going to show up? Is he going to be there? So they gathered more than what they needed. But what's very interesting is that 24 hours on the dot, the extra manna they gathered, it rotted and it spoiled and they could not use it. A lot of people are trying to do that same thing now. They're trying to figure out tomorrow, today. But we're not promised tomorrow. And one of the <clears throat> difficult lessons that I'm still trying to process and learn is to how to take life one day at a time. I want so bad to figure out tomorrow. I want to figure out next week. I don't know where I'm going to be at three years from now. I like to have this big, and there's nothing wrong with the goals. There's nothing wrong with the vision. But we are told in Romans 5, 3 to be full of joy now. Not to be full of joy after you overcome whatever it is. Not to be full of joy after you lose the weight. Not to be full of joy after your business succeeds. Not to be full of joy after you retire. Not to be full of joy after your kids get out of diapers. Enjoy where you're at right now. Because you or your children may not be here tomorrow. Back in 2006, a few months before we started the church, we started at Soxty Library. I was, I was 26 years old, and um, I didn't know how to preach or anything. And, I, and I, I called my friends from high school, and I said, man, y'all got to stop smoking pot and come to church. You know, and they came to church, and I learned how to preach. But a few months before we started the church, I had a conversation with my dad, and it didn't go well at all. Um, he shared some opinions that, that I disagreed with. I shared some opinions that he disagreed with. Um, he said some things he shouldn't have. I said some things I shouldn't have. And from that day for the next six years, we never spoke. My dad's an incredible public speaker, an incredible teacher. But for six years from that day forward, we didn't talk. I avoided him at all costs. For the first six years that I was a preacher, that I ministered, he never got to hear me. I didn't want him to come. I didn't invite him. I look back now and I think, how ignorant or prideful... 
to allow something that hurt feelings or the disagreements to stop a relationship. And I'm not saying we're supposed to be best friends with our relatives, but I'm saying we are supposed to have some kind of communication with them. Uh, um, I, I, I thought about how, what if I died during that period and I had to face Jesus having not had a relationship with my dad for six years? Or even worse, what if he died and I had to live the rest of my life on earth without having a relationship with my dad? Um, six years after that happened, we didn't talk for six years, through a series of circumstances, um, he called me up and he needed some money and he wanted to sell us this building. So we bought this building from him for $85 million. And um, I'm just kidding, it was a good deal. <laughs> I'm not messing up where I'm at. <clears throat> you say, John Paul, um, we reconciled and my dad is still the same person he was when we stopped talking. He hasn't changed his beliefs, he hasn't changed what he thought. I'm the same person I was, so why do we have a relationship now, but we didn't then? I think it's because I matured to the point where I realized that I know how to guard my heart. I know with certain people what conversations I can have and what ones I can't. I know what we can talk about, what we can't talk about. And, I, and I'm telling you, <clears throat> there's something, oh man, I wish I could verbalize this correctly. There's something very... I think we're all responsible to have open communication with our family. Again, I'm not telling you to be best friends with these people. I'm telling you, send an email. Write a handwritten letter. Send them a present. Do something that leaves the lines of communication open. Um, I've learned one of the greatest things you can do with somebody that you love but don't want to talk to is you take them to the movies. I take my parents to the movies all the time. I don't want to, I don't want to hear nothing they have to say. I don't want to say to them, so I just take them to the movies. Now that, that really doesn't work much with my mom because she talks all day in the movie. What oh, jump ball? What's going on? I'm so scared. I can't look. Jump ball? What's going on? I don't understand it. Jump ball? Explain this to me. Explain this to me. I'm like, Mom, Dory's been lost for three days. Nemo's trying to find her. The family's going to be okay. Like, calm down. So, so, there's a scripture in the Bible that says you reap what you sow. And basically that means what goes around comes around. And thank God the Bible also says that whenever we um, repent for the bad seeds we've sown, that God will lessen our consequences out of His mercy and love for us. However, two years ago I made a decision to hurt my oldest son. And for the past two years, my oldest son has not talked to me. He won't answer my phone calls, my texts. I'll visit him. He won't say anything. He won't see me. He won't do anything. I've tried everything. I've tried money. I've tried written, handwritten letters. I've tried emails. I've tried everything. And he wants nothing to do with me. And I look back and I think all the movies I could have watched with my dad for those six years that I missed out on. Every time we go to lunch, my dad pays. I thought all the free lunches I could have had for six years. <laughs> hey, I'm a tight one. And I look back at my son now and I think, oh, I would do anything to be in a relationship with him. Here's why I'm telling you this. It could be a chance the person who you've stopped the relationship with, it could be a chance that they are in great pain. And maybe they're just too prideful to apologize for what they did. Maybe they're too hurt to even admit that they're in pain. Whatever the reason, there's a good chance that they're in great, great pain. And you say, no, John Paul, they meant to do what they did. They stand behind their opinion. They're glad they made that decision. Well, then there's a good chance that you will hurt one day if you don't open up lines of communication with them. Proverbs 4.23 says to guard your heart. This is a very important thing. Again, I'm not telling you to open up your heart to them completely and, you know, just let them say whatever they want to say to you. Do whatever they want to do. They guard your heart in the process. 
If someone you love only had today to live, what would you say to them? And what are you waiting for? Affirmation does not cost a dime, but is extremely valuable to every relationship. Here's why I'm telling you that. My grandmother, who passed away a few hours ago, she came to church here and she was a hard worker and she was financially um, always able to bless our family with things we needed, braces, uh, private schooling, um, insurance, things that she'd always take care of us on that level. But one thing my grandma never, ever, ever, ever once did in her whole life was she never gave affirmation. In fact, she'd come to church here and I knew to guard my heart that I could not speak to her on Sundays because no matter what happens, whether it was a phone call or a visit, if it was a Sunday, she would tell me everything wrong with the sermon, everything wrong with the music, what she didn't like, how loud it was, the paint color on the wall, and all that stuff. So I knew if I was going to visit my grandma to guard my heart, I would talk to her Monday to Saturday, but it could not be on Sunday. She never affirmed her son or my aunt, her daughter. Um, and her son, my dad, and um, my aunt, her daughter, they did great things for God. Both of them were in ministry their whole life. My Aunt Ginger, she uh, traveled the world as a missionary. She, she, her and her husband pastored very large churches in their denomination. Not one time did my grandma say, I'm proud of you. Not once. And the whole family knows this about her. What's very, very fascinating is my dad and my aunt never stopped serving their mom and dad. The easiest thing you can give to your child is affirmation. The easiest thing you say is, I'm proud of you. And the thing I see in my dad and my aunt is they never stop serving their mom and dad in spite of never receiving a thank you. They would take them to the bathroom and back, clean up after them, feed them, serve, do whatever it took, put up with their negativity because it was their mom and their dad. Affirmation doesn't cost a dime. It's extremely valuable to every relationship. Let me tell you something. Your children don't have to do everything right for you to affirm them. Your children don't have to make straight A's for you to affirm them. Your children don't have to excel in the sport that you excelled in to affirm them. Your children don't have to do everything godly and believe like you believe for you to affirm your children. Now that sentence right there, every one of you in your thought, amen, that, that'll preach, that's good. Now listen to this, let me reverse it. Your parents don't have to do everything right for you to love them. Your parents... Don't have to make all the wisest decisions for you to tell them how much you care. Your parents don't have to believe just like you believe for you to affirm them and tell them you're glad that they're in your life. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, it's my favorite story in the Bible. The prophet Samuel comes to the house of Jesse on God's behalf and says, One of your sons is the next king. Samuel was the prophet. He heard from God. He goes to Jesse. I found it very interesting that God did not tell Samuel which son it was at first. So he goes to Jesse and he says, Jesse, line up all of your sons. One of them is the next king of Israel. Isn't this great? It's like you won the lottery, man. God's changing the blood lineage of the throne. It's going to be one of yours. Jesse, one of your sons is going to be king. So Jesse lines up seven of his sons. And they start with the oldest, Eliab. It wasn't him. They go to the wisest. They go to the strongest. They go to the most experienced. Down the line and not any of those sons is the next king. And Samuel says, oh my goodness, what's going on? I know I heard from God. I know one of your sons is king. Do you have any more boys? And Jesse said, well, I got this red-headed, freckled kid. He's the runt of the litter. His name's David. The Bible does say he had red hair and freckles. He's good for nothing, but... Taking care of the animals. He's a shepherd. He's <laughs> a shepherd. They bring David before him and all of a sudden Samuel looks and he says, that's the one God's chosen. 
He's the next king of Israel. Here's the point I want to make. Listen. Jesse had a king living in his house and he didn't even know it. Is there a chance that you have a king living in your house today? Someone that God's going to use to do great, great things in life. Don't wait until he grows up and goes to college and leaves the nest before you realize it. Don't wait until that queen that God has given you gets married and has children of her own before you realize you had a queen living in your home. Don't wait until someone is gone before you realize the purpose they were supposed to have in your life. Last story, and I'll let you go. Dr. Ed Young, he's the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, or he was at the time. He was a huge nomination, very well-respected theologian, great, great man of God. And he got invited to go to the White House and have a, a meeting with the president himself, one-on-one, -on -one, just a few years ago. He was so excited, he couldn't wait, he was so honored to even be invited. But he found out that his son's basketball team had their state championship game on the same day is the day he was supposed to go to the White House and meet with the president. What was he going to do? I'm sure he could have gone to the White House and got like a play-by-play -play video after it was done. He could have had texts come in on what's going on and what the score is. He could have somebody call him every 10 minutes and tell him how his son's doing. He didn't think twice. Dr. Young told his staff to call the president and tell him that he will not be able to attend that one-on-one -on -one meeting. He went to his son's game and it was a very exciting game. The score was going back and forth. In the final seconds of the game, his son's team was down by one point, and his son scored the winning basket that put them over the top. They won the state championship game. Dr. Ed Young is to say, and I quote, I wouldn't have traded that moment for anything in the world, not even a personal meeting with the President of the United States of America. Ecclesiastes 6.3 says, you may live a long life and have a hundred children, but if you don't enjoy them, you're better off dead. Um, I don't regret when I was 17 years old and had my first son, a Logan. I don't regret the weekends that I chose to not hang out with friends and lay in bed with him and give him a chocolate milk bottle while we watched episodes of Barney over and over and over again. I regret the times that I went off with my friends and didn't do that. I don't regret my, my son Zachary, he's 16 now, and whenever he was little he couldn't go to bed, he couldn't fall asleep in his crib, so I would have to drive him in my pickup truck. It shook really bad, and I'd put him to sleep and carry him real slow into his room. One night, it was 12 o'clock at night, he walked to sleep with his desk, and I put him in the truck, we're going for a ride. Uh, all I had on was my boxers and a, and a t-shirt, no, nothing else. I said, just get him in the truck, and I put him in the truck. So you're going to sleep, and we drive around the neighborhood for 30 minutes, he's still not asleep. I said, man, we need to go faster. So I decided to go down 707, midnight, <clears throat> driving down the road and all of a sudden I run over a nail. Psh, my tire bust right there. I'm on the rim. This is before we had cell phones. And it's 12 o'clock at night. I'm on 707 wearing nothing but my boxers with a crying baby in my truck. I have to roll the window down and honk the horn for people in their homes to come out and you know, call and give me help. I don't regret one single night that I drove him around at 12 o'clock in my truck to put him to sleep. I do regret not wearing any pants that night, but I don't regret <laughs> They would have been Avenger pants, but anyway. <laughs> Let me tell you something I do regret, and I'll close. I do regret, and don't take this the wrong way, and please don't be offended. I do regret the hundreds and hundreds of hours over the past 10 years 
that I left my family to go help a church member in need. I do regret the hundreds and hundreds of times that I pick up the phone when I was with my kids to answer it for a church member who's going through a crisis or had some kind of a major problem. In fact, all the people that I helped through all kinds of sexual morality, through thoughts of suicide, drug overdose, alcohol, all these people that I would leave my family hundreds and hundreds of times to help them, not a single one of them are in my life right now. I do regret wasting time talking to church members who get offended easy. Man, all the time that I put out a fire and make somebody happy and change this and change that, do this and that, all those times, not a single one of them are in my life either. I've learned that people that get offended easy, no matter what you do, you're never going to make them happy. I don't regret working and doing my job as a pastor. I do regret when I took those hours away from my children and from my family. And it took me 10 years to finally learn that lesson. Every Sunday morning, the guitar players, <clears throat> they come up here and they have to retune their guitars. They do that to make sure they're all in the same key, they're all unified. If they didn't retune their guitars, they'd play the right chords, but it would sound all mushy and wouldn't sound right. Every week, you and I need to retune our life. How do we do that? We remind ourselves how short life is. We live like we were dying. 